If you would turn in your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at the chapter, the sixth chapter, and we will study tonight the first 11 verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Now, we were supposed to do this last week, and God saw fit to send a wild thunderstorm. For those of you that weren't in the area, it was like, well, I'm not going to say the pagan gods because they're not real, but it was like the old folklore of the Nordic peoples and Thor was beating on his hammer. It was crazy. Uh, Huge thunder, lightning strikes, and we all know that Thor and Zeus and all of them are demons masquerading as, as gods and not gods, but it was crazy, and the power went out, and we waited. I was up there in the front office with Nathan, and we kept waiting and waiting and waiting. We were on hold with PG&E, and finally we got through with them and found out that the power wasn't going to be coming on in time for our gathering and ended up coming on maybe close to 8 o'clock that night. But here we are, and I would have rather us had some other text for this evening, but it's interesting, as I read it again in preparation for tonight, I thought, what better Thanksgiving message could we have? It puts before us a wonderful future, and it also reminds us what we were saved from. I don't know of two better reasons than to thank God. And so here we are in our college and young adult Thanksgiving family dinner, having a text that would not immediately present itself to us as an occasion for Thanksgiving. And yet, I don't know many other texts in the Bible more appropriate to share this evening. Now, some of you have grown up here at Trinity Community Church. Others of you haven't. Some of you come from a background that taught nothing but eschatology. We call those eschatomania churches. They're crazy about eschatology. For those of you that have no idea what eschatology means, that's okay. That's not weird. It means study of the end times. The Bible tells us about the future. The Bible tells us the future, and we call that part of theology, that specific area of theology, eschatology, study of the eschaton, the end. Now, some of you came from a church that taught nothing about eschatology. We call those churches eschatophobic. They're terrified of approaching the subject of the eschaton, of eschatology. Now, if I told you that scripture says eschatology is the most practical category of theology for life today, would you believe me? Most people shun it. Most people avoid it. Or they go crazy about it and there's basically nothing practical whatsoever regarding what they say concerning eschatology. Tonight... Our scripture places our second-by-second real-life experience in the kingdom of the future. This is wild stuff. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, pulls the very real, very literal, very earthly, very actual kingdom to bear upon our daily lives from this moment on. Would you read with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Does any one of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? 
So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint those who are of no account in the church as judges? I say this to your shame. Is it really this way? There is not one wise man among you who will be able to pass judgment between his brothers? On the contrary, brother is tried with brother and not before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Father, we ask now that as we open up your word, you would speak mightily. And oh, Father, we pray that as your word does confront us in our sins, we cannot help but see the free grace of God that you love to save sinners. And you've put before us a splendid future of a glorious reign. And we ask, oh God, that you would bring it to bear on our lives immediately. Transform us, we pray, from one degree of glory to another, for Christ's sake. Amen. Did you hear the gospel logic there? Did you hear the gospel logic in that text? Christians will rule this world when they inherit the kingdom of God at the return of King Jesus. Should that not transform our lives Right now, if we do not find transformation in light of these truths, we scarcely believe them. We should question altogether if we believe them at all. Three points tonight. Number one, if you will rule the world, start today. Verses one to five. If you, secondly, If you will rule the world, sacrifice today. That's verses 6 to 8. Thirdly, if you will rule the world, sanctify today. And that's verses 9 to 11. If you will rule, rule the world, that's a tongue twister. If you will rule the world, there we go. Start today. Sacrifice today. Sanctify today. Those are our three points. Now, if you remember to recall where we've been, because now we're two weeks removed from it, we received sharp prohibitions against any association with a person who professes to be a believer, yet lives in unrepentant sin. Now, let's be really careful there. We'd have to leave the planet to avoid all associations with sinners. Okay? That's not what Paul was talking about. We should pursue the lost. We should preach the gospel to the lost. We should be salt and light among unbelievers in the world. We want every rebel to repent. We want every rebel to enter and to join us. Fast forward. Fast forward time. A trillion years. And you will find a worldwide kingdom 
on planet Earth ruled by those we know right now as the brokenhearted, the born again, the repentant, those trembling under God's word. The world is going to be ruled by those the world currently mocks. What should future kings, queens, governors, mayors, rulers of the world to come do today? That's the question for tonight. Should we not make every effort to prepare and ready ourselves for the more significant rule to come? As I studied this text, I could not escape. The Lord had me pinned against the corner. Do you understand, Sam? That's your future. Do you understand that the only significance about your current life right now is preparing you, readying you to rule with Christ? an actual kingdom. When we consider that that's the reality, brothers and sisters, Christian life becomes far more exciting. Repentance gleams. It, 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 it's, it's this golden trophy to us to take hold of and to say, yes, if this is still true of my life, the rule is coming. I'm going to reign with Christ. A real kingdom on this planet more real than this life feels right now to us. This will seem to be gray, tasteless shadow when we enter that kingdom. Point one, if you rule, if you will rule the world, start today, verses one to five. Look at verse one to two to begin. Does any of you, when he has a case against another, dare to be tried before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute the smallest law courts? So here's the situation. There's a dispute. There's even legal affairs related to your situation. However, there's one problem. The issues are with another Christian. Oh, makes it bitter, doesn't it? Painful. But fair is fair, and so you decide, I'm taking him to court. We have a justice system for a reason. Why would you go put your case before educated people who, if they don't repent, will suffer justice by God as criminals against him for eternity? Like, have you ever thought about that before? We're talking about you seeking a lawsuit with another Christian. And Paul's saying, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how inappropriate that is. You're going to go seek justice from someone who's not just even before God and is going to be punished as a criminal for eternity. That's what you're going to do? We deal with these things in-house, Paul's saying. We do these things with those that are going to judge the world, not those that are going to be judged by God forever. Uh, Don't you have instant access right now to heroes who will judge the world? That's Paul's logic, and it really makes us feel awfully stupid, seeing how dumb we think. The apostle's word order is bold. He says, dare any of you, having a matter against the other, be judged by the unrighteous ones and not by the holy ones? You see, rhetorical questions are often more forceful than direct orders. Dare you? How dare you? Would you dare? That's, that's what Paul's saying. Each of the sentences in verses 1 and 2 are interrogations. When you have the two options of secular judges and saintly judges Why would you choose secular? Do you trust the world's idea of justice over God's? What's the world's authority for their justice? 
Isn't it law written by men? What's the authority for the saints? Isn't it inerrant written by God? And so let's flip it around. Maybe, maybe, maybe everyone in this room was settled. I, I'm not going to go seek a lawsuit ever against another Christian. But when a believer may want to sue you, do everything you can to bring the conflict with them to fellow Christians, to the church. Do everything you can. Now, how does Paul apply eschatology, study of the end times, study of the future, to everyday life? Verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Does that statement, does that question assume we should know it? I'm sorry, does that question assume that we do know it or don't? What does it say we should already know? Paul speaks in a way, all of you should be firmly convinced of this. All of you should be thinking every day about this. He's, he's shocked. Do you, do you not know this? You say that when you're shocked, someone, someone should know something. And you say, do, do you not know? We should share a robust theology about the future. Namely, we are going to judge the world. Question. What world? The world. The only world. What's that mean? That we're going to judge the world. To judge at its most basic definition is to decide. When you decide, you deem what's best. Simply stated. To judge is to decide, it's to deem what's best. The repentant will make all the decisions for the world. That's what it means to rule the world. You and I are going to rule the planet. Jesus said it very clearly at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed. Oh, you don't know how blessed, how blessed are the poor in spirit and those persecuted for Jesus' sake For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's already your possession. It already belongs to you. However, he said, blessed are the lowly for they shall, future tense, inherit the earth. So we already have citizenship sealed in heaven. The kingdom that is currently in heaven, which will in the future come to earth, already belongs to us. It's already possession, but we will inherit the planet when the kingdom of heaven invades earth. So it's ours already, and yet not yet that we have inherited this planet. The kingdom of heaven has not yet come to the kingdom of earth in the way that it shall come. The kingdom Jesus will bring from heaven to earth already belongs to us, and yet it's not fully yet Upon his return, think about it, this is what he's saying. Upon his return... Upon Christ's return, God and the elect angels will say things like this of us. Those are sons of God. That title, biblically, is ascribed to the Davidic kings. That's just outrageous. Those are the sons. Those are the daughters of God. Demons and wicked men will grind their teeth. They'll grit their teeth and they'll say, those immortal humans who shine like the sun, ah, those are the sons of God who reign with the king who bled for them and we hate them for it. Oh, how... Everything's going to be turned upside down. The future of heaven is earthly. I'll say that again. The future of heaven 
is earthly. Our future is to rule, watch this, our future is to rule heaven on earth. Paul asks, do you guys really not understand this? Do you really not think about this? I mean, if you're hearing me tonight, if you're hearing the word of God tonight, does this not change how we live tomorrow? And he's going, you don't think about this? This isn't immediately what you think? This isn't your instinct? This isn't your worldview? Verse 2, if the world is judged by you, are you not worthy to constitute even the lowest, smallest law courts? Who's more qualified to serve as a tribunal? What effect does this have on your desire to study God's word? What do lawyers do? They study the law. What do politicians, well, what should politicians do? They should know the constitution. They they, they should know the history of their nation. My friends, listen. I, I can't get it through to you. Only the Spirit of God is going to get this through to you. You are, if you are in Christ, you are going to rule the world. How should you spend the rest of your life starting tonight? Vigorously preparing to rule the world. You're not going to get an automatic download in the resurrection of all the Bible knowledge. You're going to continue learning based on what you've got now. Are you living your life right now like you are going to rule the world? Don't you see how eschatology totally transforms life today? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? You don't know this? You don't get this? Uh, Listen again. What would shock Paul to learn you and I don't know? He would come in here and he'd say, hey, okay, you know, we'd sit him down, q and I'd be interviewing him. Apostle Paul, how you doing? Doing great. Apostle Paul, um, just going to say something to you. They don't know that we're going to rule angels. What? You don't know? Why don't you know? And you'd cry out, because Pastor Sam hasn't taught this text before. And so here we are, teaching it. So if anyone shows up, they're not shocked that we don't know it. You don't know we will rule angels that will make decisions. No, think about this. This is crazy. We will make decisions for the armies of heaven. We are, our future is to decide what's best for heaven's forces. Question. Do you, do you feel prepared to make even one decision for God's armies, to make even one decision for one of the angels. For Gabriel to come up and say, listen, I need to know, what is it that I do? Um, Would God be pleased by your instructions to his faithful warriors? I'm going to spit out a couple things the Bible says about angels. Michael and Gabriel and all the hosts of heaven have never sinned. Not even once. How many times do you sin today? We don't even know. They're called princes. I don't know anyone in here bearing that title. Princes over legions of warriors. They have actually fought an actual dragon and his devils while serving God's people over the millennia. Just one of them slayed 185,000 fearsome Assyrians who would absolutely brutalize people, behead them, put them on stakes outside of the cities they conquered. One angel totally slaughtered nearly 200,000 of them. Some angels ate actual food with Lot. It's a weird one, isn't it? They operate in hierarchy. 
They're shockingly intelligent. They long. They sing. They shout. They have unique names, all of them. Personalities, talents, abilities, responsibilities, histories. They're not a clone army. They're all unique. There's more heavenly beings than you and I could possibly count. There's different species of heavenly beings. Um, Seraphs, cherubs, living creatures. Many of them are referred to even as men. They appear to be men. They're not men. They're not image bearers, but they appear like men. One exciting sliver of our future life will be hearing our new friends, these heavenly beings, tell us what's been going on in the unseen realm for years. There's an entire history. One of my favorite thoughts in all the world is there is an entire history of angelic issues. (laughs) There's an angelic history. Some of them are called watchers, some soldiers, some messengers, some charioteers. Elisha's servant, his eyes were opened by God and he saw heavenly forces complete with heavenly chariots and heavenly horses. There's heavenly horses. That's, wow. Don't you get that we will make decisions for them? Don't you grasp that we will be responsible for them? Now, If you're not thinking this, wake up, because this is the question that I'm thinking. How will Prince Michael, how will Prince Gabriel, Chief Gabriel, feel about taking orders from losers like us? You think? You wonder that? Does scripture say they view us as losers? This will blow your mind. Peter says they fall over themselves to see how God loved us so much that he'd become one of us, not one of them. One of us to shed his blood in our stead in order to glorify us with his son who died for us. Satan and his millions of angels rebel, and God says, see you in hell. And God can say that because God's omnipresent, and hell exists because God wills it to exist. Hell's a good, holy place where justice is being executed by God in the presence of the Lord and of his holy angels. I'll see you in hell. No hope for you. Man sins just like they do. Worse than they do, we can argue. And God says, I'm going to become one of them and die in their stead and save an entire race of man to reign with my son. And so we see that the angels are eager for the day that they will obey the demands of their creator's Co-heirs bought by their king's blood. (laughs) Verse 3. We should just end, pray, and be gone. But we have to go to verse 3. How much more must we judge matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint those who are of no account in the church as judges? How does this apply to us? Trinity Community Church. I see some of you guys that just came in from the new members meeting. So grateful that you guys did that. Really encouraged by you and encourage those of you that are not yet members to become members. Trinity Community Church needs young men and young women rising up in the ranks, qualified in head and in heart to solve conflicts and make decisions for the church. We need elders and deacons and teachers and counselors and mentors and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and friends fit to rule the world who will currently rule the church. That's what we need. We need that. 
If you're not aspiring towards that, what in the world are you doing? Why are you bearing the name Christian? Why would you call yourself a Christian? You don't have a clue what Christianity is. This is what it is. And what does Paul say to Christians and churches who prefer to settle disputes in the courts of the world? He says, I say this to your shame. Verse 5, shame on all of you. This isn't a matter of opinion. This is a matter of shame. He says, is it really this way? There's not one wise man among you who will be able to pass judgment between his brothers. Let me ask you something. You're not kids anymore. You're young men and women. Let's cut out the young. You're men and women. That's all that matters. We just say young men and women to separate you from old men and women. You're men and women. Would we be able to single out, here's the goal, all of you, to be wise enough to settle disputes between others in the room? Are you there? Do you know the word of God? Do you love the word of God? Do you love God's people? Do you know God's people? Do you see how this is bearing on our lives? It'll transform this church. If those in this room take this seriously, believe that he means what he says. Have you ever said, don't judge me? Okay, let me ask that again. Have you ever said, don't judge me? I'll ask it again. Have you ever said, this is a question, okay, I want you to respond. Don't judge me. Okay, I hear the sound of rattling because you guys are nodding your heads up and down. What does this say about such a defensive attitude? Don't judge me. We need wise men. We need wise women who can judge us. That's what this text is saying. We need wise men and women to judge us. We're desperate for godly, biblical, compassionate, just, gentle, confrontational leaders to decide for us, to deem what's best for us. And it's a crying shame if a church doesn't have them. You and I have to pray that God makes, raises up wise men and women to rule the church until we rule the world. And we should pray even more fervently that God would make us such men and women. Secondly, if you will rule the world, sacrifice today. Verses 6 to 8. He says, on the contrary, and the last two points are much shorter than the first. On the contrary, and that phrase provides the cadence here. If you notice, it's repeated. That gives us the, the, the idea that this is a separate section. On the contrary, verses 6 to 7. On the contrary, verse 8. On the contrary. Now, really quickly, what's the contrary? What is that? What does that mean? What does contrary mean? It's the exact and extreme opposite of something else. It's at the polar and radical opposite of basic reality. The Corinthian Christians spent so much time together as a church that they forgot to love each other as Jesus does. That's the problem. And they were thinking and feeling and behaving on the contrary against truth. They were on the far side of the seesaw. They were mindless of their future reign with Christ. They're living as if this fleeting life will be more than just a blip after 10,000 years of ruling the world to come. Brother is tried with brother and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a failure for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Okay, understand. The whole context is court, right? Taking one another to court. Understand? Are we waiting for a verdict in court? Paul says, you got it already. You don't need to wait for the verdict in court. Failure. You lost. You don't win. Who cares if you win the lawsuit? You already lost. You lost in love. You lost in witness. 
You lost in preparation to rule. You lost as king's ambassadors. We are heaven's outpost in enemy territory. We are Christ's colony in this foreign and hostile land. We are God's embassy in a vast sea of spiritual zombies. Don't live like they do as if this life is the main event. I don't know anything more important for young men and women to hear. Now, you know that little warning on shows, viewer discretion is advised. Well, I see a bunch of, what do you guys call Gen Z or whatever? Okay, got a millennial up here talking to a bunch of Gen Zers. Viewer discretion is advised. Or in your tongue, trigger warning. Here it comes, verse 7. You're going to be offended. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You triggered? How could God ever suggest that I tolerate victimization? Let's pretend that we go to uh, we go on a chicken and fries field trip, okay? And we've got Kentucky Fried Chicken on one side of the road, and we've got Chick-fil-A on the other side of the road. Now, what do you say as some sick, deranged psychopath takes one step towards the incomparably inferior KFC? We would cry with tears in our eyes. Why not rather go to Chick-fil-A? This is an important illustration. What would possibly drive you to hell over paradise? Understand that the Apostle Paul is saying it is vastly more preferable to be wronged and defrauded than to begin a lawsuit against one for whom our king died and with whom we will rule the world to come. Wronged is injustice. That's the word. It's not being treated less than I feel I should. It's objectively suffering injustice. It's to be injured. It's to be mistreated. It's to be harmed. Would you prefer to suffer injury rather than to react in a way that King Jesus did not when he was tortured. Defrauded. That word is deprived. It's not the fate of an accident. It's to be cheated. It's to be robbed. It's to be totally denied. Would you accept the loss of all things because you know you're going to reign with Christ? You know that we do believe in a prosperity gospel? We do believe in health, wealth, and happiness, just not in this life? I mean, this, this, this is our future, folks. Verse 8, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers, you see. Who have we treated unjustly this week? Who have we denied? Who, here's a good one, who would we treat differently in the world to come than we treated this past week? Who will I Who will you wish we treated differently in the kingdom? Think of a brother or sister that you've not loved correctly. Think a brother or sister to whom you must repent and ask forgiveness. Lastly, if you will rule the world, sanctify today. 
sanctified today, verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? See, we need eschatology. He keeps anchoring our present life and the life to come. Eschatology shapes how we live second by second. God's kingdom is coming from heaven to earth. The kingdom of God is the domain which will rule. And all who do wrong or injustice, as verse 8 says, simply will not gain the kingdom Jesus will bring to earth. If this is your way of life, you need to know the basic truth that if you heartlessly injure believers, specifically, the king will reject you. And some of you, I mean, some of you are are new here, and there are a lot of churches that would apologize for having said what I just said. But we need to hear it. We need the word of God to stand against us as our adversary before it opens its arm to us as our friend. Because this is the one to whom he will look. Who's broken in heart. Shattered in spirit. And who trembles under his word. Do not be deceived, Paul says. Why does Paul command this? That's a command. Do not be deceived. Who's responsible to obey this command, this obvious command? Can anyone obey this command for you? So who's responsible if I fail to obey this charge correctly? Who is responsible, the one deceiving me or me, the one deceived? If I find myself deceived, I'm responsible, no one else, not a victim. I believed what I wanted to believe. If you find yourself deceived, you alone are to blame. And so pay careful attention to the word of God that follows. And and let me give you a charge here. Encouraged to see you all here tonight. But don't just hang on Tuesday nights or Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights or Thursday nights. You've got a bunch of people here who, who are committed to being here. Because they want to disciple you. They want to come alongside you. They want to help you follow Jesus. And they're good stock. They're godly. They're wise. They're gentle. They'll love you. Be aggressive in your desire to be discipled. Paul writes a sample list of sins from which the holy ones of carnal Corinth have been saved and washed and sanctified and justified. Now, as I read, we're, we're landing, we're concluding. This is where we're going st- we're, we're to end. As I read this list, it's just a sample list. It's not an exhaustive list. As I read this list, you better hear sins. God loves to forgive. It's not how you're going to hear this text often preached. It's how the text is written. As I read this list, I want you to hear sins that God loves to forgive, that he loves to cleanse, that he loves to heal, that he loves to redeem and undo. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Corinth was filled with wretched filth. Christ forgave. Is California any different? Who has the king of all grace? Or why has the king of all grace put you and I here in California? Which at times feels like the pit of hell, okay? Why has he put us here? I want you guys to to listen to me very carefully. Why has he put you here? He's put you here. Why has he put you here? For the sexually 
immoral. How else are the sexually immoral going to hear about this gospel and turn from their sin and trust Christ and be washed, sanctified, justified? How else? This is the pornoi, the pornos, that's the word, who indulge sexually outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. How many of the sins in this room are represented by that one word? Pornoi. God of all grace has put us here in California for the idolaters who love, fear, and worship anything or anyone besides the one true living God who created the world. He's put us here for adulterers who, though married, seek companionship outside of their committed marriage. He's put us here for the effeminate who, though men, act feminine. And you could say the reverse for those who, though women, behave in a masculine fashion. He's put us here for the homosexuals who are, who are men in this case that lust after men, or we would say the opposite, women who lust after women. The Bible does not blush about these matters. It speaks right to them. Their sin and God will forgive that sin. These sins are awful, and God's grace is amazing. For the thieves, my friends, have you ever stolen anything? Anything. Whether it be an actual object, or whether it be time that you're getting paid to work. Thieves who take what they've not earned. For the greedy who desire what God has not given them. For the drunkards who numb themselves to reality. For the revilers who slander, gossip, verbally abuse. For the swindlers who manipulate others for their own gain. Why has God put us here for them? Because if we don't preach the gospel to them, if they don't hear and repent and melt under the wonderful mercies of God, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you an unrepentant sinner? Have you yet to turn from your sin to the gleaming grace and forgiveness and love of Christ? Do you know a repentant, an unrepentant sinner? They, or you, will not rule the world will not judge the world, but will suffer judgment. Why? Why would you, why, why? Why would we consign others or ourselves to such a fate? Verse 11, and such were some of you. Are these unforgivable sins? Are these beyond God's mercies? But, You were, you were living for these, but you were washed. My friends, those of you in Christ, you know what this is. You might still struggle with temptation towards these things, but you were washed. You might see flecks of the filth of these still spray up in your face, but you were washed. This was the pollution in your heart. It pervaded your heart. But you were washed. He washed you. He made you something new entirely. He's made you clean. And so your relationship to that sin is no longer friendly and lovely. Your relationship to now, to it now is hostile. You hate it now. And when you, when you might struggle with it again, when you might even commit it again, you hate it. You think, oh, why have I gone here again? I hate this. My relationship to this sin is dead. It's no longer life-giving. I once was able to find life here, and it's just filthy to me. 
I hate that I struggle with this. You, but you were sanctified. You were made holy. You were put in a devoted love relationship to God. You're grieved over grieving the heart of God. That never would have even crossed your mind before. But you were justified. You were made right. You were put before God as right as Jesus Christ is before the Father. You are as right with God as God is with God because of what Christ has done. Infinite righteousness. Adam and Eve had a created, losable righteousness, and they lost it. It would have been amazing if Christ put us back into their original state. And he said, now forget that. They lost that righteousness. I'm going to give them the righteousness of God, not the created righteousness of man. I'm going to give them an unlosable righteousness, not the losable righteousness that Adam and Eve lost. You were justified. You were put right with God in the name for the fame of our Lord and King Jesus. For his fame. For his name. He didn't do you a favor. He glorified his name. I, I am he who forgives sinners. I will not remember your sins any longer. I blot out your sins. I am he who do this for my own name's sake. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. He loves doing this in the spirit of our God. This is the means by which he does it. Invisibly, you can't see it, but there's an, an, another force that's dominating you, that's ruling you. Isn't it weird that you can't settle back into the old sins where you lived and breathed? Now you have no peace with them. Now you're unsettled with them. If you're miserable over your sins, praise God. And come back. Turn. Get swallowed up in his love. Do you believe, sinner, do you believe the Holy Spirit wishes to wash you? Do you trust that the Holy God wants to make you holy? Are you certain the Holy God wants to put you right with himself? Do you believe that what King Jesus desires most is that very thing? And do you believe that it's what the Holy Spirit desires? Paul says, but, but, but. Christian, do you, do you really believe that God washed you and made you holy and put you right with himself by the blood of the Lamb? Then how will you live in light of your future reign. Father, we ask that this Thanksgiving message would blow our hearts up with gratefulness, that we would be amazed at what the future holds for us. And, oh, Father, we pray that you would cause us to live in light of that future reign, not just an opaque, mysterious eternity, but as eternity is defined reigning with Christ forever and ever on a new earth and new heavens. Now, Father, we ask that you would cause us to be grateful as well for the great, great, free grace of Christ that you washed and sanctified, justified, cleansed us for his sake by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.